The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Well, good morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to pick up there this morning as we've been going through uh, kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and through the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, let me start by saying this. I, my mother... Uh, was very good at applying the rod of correction to the seat of understanding. Anybody else with me on that? I think today they would call it child abuse, uh, but she didn't spare the rod. And so, you know, as you're growing up, you're having your own kids, and you say, you know, I'm going to do it different, right? And there was this guy named James Dobson at the time, and he said, time out is the best way to discipline your children. And I figured out that didn't work always very well. So I still applied the rod of correction to the seat of understanding. I jokingly, you know, Sarah, who leads worship, I, we joke and say, boy, Sarah, I whipped her every day whether she needed it or not because she was so stubborn and strong-willed. I was afraid uh, that she'd overtake the house if I didn't. But we did learn to apply that thing called time out. And, and it worked effectively. Not always, but many times, and the, the idea or the jest behind the timeout was to take the kid who was misbehaving or didn't have it right uh, and to isolate them on their own, kind of away from the family unit, in hopes that they would be there and they would begin to get some remorse or some understanding that what they had done was wrong and there was a need for them to admit that wrong so that they, they might kind of be restored back to the family unit. We'd let them eat, but other than that, they stayed in their room. And we learned quickly to take everything out of their room that they loved playing with. Or really, it was just a reward to send them there with all that stuff. I remember my mother, we used to joke and say my mother had arms that were 12 feet long. Sitting in church on Sunday morning, you didn't have kids' church back then. You sat with your parents, and it didn't matter if I was at the end of the aisle. Somehow or another, her arm would find that little tender piece of skin behind, behind the muscle, and there would just be that tweak. Well, really what we're going to talk about and what Paul addresses in the church there in Corinth is very similar in a sense. And I've entitled today's message, Church Discipline, The Forgotten Grace. One of the bad or good things about teaching verse by verse or chapter by chapter, you really can't skip over stuff that's there. Um, I, you know, you just got to deal with it. And this is one of those topics that is not a comfortable thing to talk about. But if we understand that church discipline, as God has ordered it in the body of the cry of Christ, is for one purpose, and that is restoration, and it always has to be seasoned and governed by the grace of God. Otherwise, it's church abuse. Now, in, in the church there in Corinth, they were dealing with some of the very things that we deal with our, in our culture and churches as well. Uh, so it's not just an old story, an old letter that was written some time ago, and it has no relevance to us today. 
But Paul, if you remember, he began to deal right off the bat that in Corinth, in that church that he had planted, he had invested a year and a half of his life there discipling them. There were some things that had begun to take place, and the first thing he addressed was disunity. Let me ask you the question. Do we have disunity in the body of Christ today? Yes. Now, one of the reasons for the disunity was that there had become this idea of celebritism in the body of Christ, in that church, not unlike what we have today, where we like to pick and choose our favorite guys on the internet or the podcast, and, and we listen to them, we seem to follow them like we're their, their roadies or something, and everything they do, it seems like they can't do anything wrong, and listen, what we do is we become to the place where we worship a man rather than worship the one that he's pointing us to, and that's Jesus. And so there was celebritism that was going on in the early church. Uh, in this church, there was gross immorality, sexual immorality. By the way, this message is PG-13 today, okay? Uh, so just give you a forewarning. So there was sexual immorality that was going on in the church, and, and Paul needed to address that because it was affecting the whole body, and greater than that, it was defaming the name of Christ because it was just being overlooked and even bragged about within the church. And so Paul begins to deal with that. There were misappropriations of the Lord's Supper, uh, and, and they'd forgotten the reverence and the sanctity of that church ordinance that had been given that when we partake of the bread and, and the the juice as we partake in communion, the Lord's Supper, we're identifying and recognizing that we are a part of the body of Christ and they were coming to the communion table and they were having more than just a glass of wine, they were having a keg of wine and they're all having a party and Paul says, hey man, this is wrong and so Paul begins to deal with these things. And we got to understand the city of Corinth in particular when we look at what Paul's going to deal with today in chapter 5. Corinth was an extremely immoral city. I mean, worse than what we think of in our culture today. And it would probably rival some other cities in our nation. But overall, our nation is nowhere that Corinth was at the time. In the city of Corinth, there were about 12 temples that had been dedicated to the worship of, of idols or gods that were not the God, but other gods. And there was one of these God, these God, goddesses in particular that was worshipped, and they built a temple to her. And, and it, her, her symbolism was that she was the goddess of love. And if you can imagine worship taking place in this kind of setting, that there were over a thousand, one thousand prostitutes that had been hired by the church, or excuse me, by that temple. They were priestess prostitutes, and men and women would go to this temple to worship the deity and engage in sexual immorality as an act of worship. Can you imagine that? Everybody say, no, I can't imagine it. Just make sure you're awake. Now, the church that Paul had planted there in Corinth was made up of these people who had lived this way before. Very similar to what we would hope and pray and expect that as we are the body of Christ engaged in 
sharing Jesus with others to lead them to Christ, regardless of what their lifestyle may be, and making them disciples and walking with them in that as they're changed by Christ, do they get to the place that they're ready to go? I would pray to God that we begin to see some folks come out of that same kind of stuff and come into our body and our body become a mess because they're still dealing with the stuff that they used to live in. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Listen, when I got saved, everything didn't clean up in my life overnight, and neither did it in yours. As a matter of fact, there's still stuff inside here that I deal with all the time. And it's that process that God is working in my heart and life, just like He's working in your heart and life, to continue to sanctify us or make us holy, set apart unto Him. That's called Christian growth. And can I give you some good news? Everybody in this room this morning is messed up. Are you glad for that? Give me a hand clap if you're glad that everybody's messed up. Now, that doesn't excuse it. Because our desire is to grow and be conformed more to the likeness of Christ, right? And so Paul is dealing with a a new church. They didn't know how to do church. They hadn't seen the model. And so he's writing to them this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And follow along with me because we're going to deal with this subject of church discipline this morning. He begins writing in verse 1 and he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, you're going to find in a minute that what he's talking about is gross sexual immorality. I mean, it's stuff that, as he says here in this verse... The kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. And what he means by that, listen, there's sexual immorality going on among you that it's even illegal in Corinth to participate in. Stuff that's just wild. He says, a man has his father's wife. Now, what he's talking about here is incest. There's this guy that has his father. The guy's a member. He's a born-again believer. He's a part of the church. And he's sleeping with his father's wife. And he says, and you are arrogant. In other words, <laughs> you had this high-mindedness about yourself, and you know that this guy's participating in this type of sin, and you're arrogant about it. Meaning, you, you boast, as he'll say later, in the fact that you tolerate it. And maybe they were like those oftentimes today where Christians kind of take grace to the utter limit and say, you know, I can do anything because I know I'm going to be forgiven. That's just wrong, right? And so he says, you know, you're arrogant about it. You're allowing it to be in your midst. Then he goes on to say, ought you not rather mourn and let him who has done be removed from among you? Now somebody said, man, that's pretty hard. Where's grace? Somebody would say, well, I would remind us what Tim Kimmel shared with us a few weeks ago where he said, you know, in God's character, grace does not negate discipline. He says that. Verse 3. For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, not judgment in the sense of his salvation. He's pronounced judgment that it's wrong, and we are to judge, right? 
the pauper saying, I'm not judging you. We had a waitress the other day, uh, the other night, eating supper. And he must have said three times, not judging you, not judging you, not judging. It's kind of a popular phrase. Well, listen, judgment does not mean we cast despair. Judgment just simply says, this is right and this is wrong. Right? And so Paul says, look, I've already cast judgment here. Verse 4, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Underline that phrase. And let me segue here for just a moment. Paul's reminding them that, listen, when you guys come together as the body of Christ, remember that you're not coming there just as an individual to have your ears tickled. You're not coming to be entertained. But you are the body of Christ. We've been made one with Him in union, and we are all together the body of Christ. And he's saying, if I can paraphrase, listen, remember when you're present together as the body, Jesus is right there with you. Now, that's a pretty startling thought to think about. He says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Then verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I wrote to you in my letter. Evidently, there was a previous letter that Paul wrote to the church there in Corinth. We don't have it, but it was a letter written. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate or to mingle with the sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers and idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world to do that. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. The eat that he's talking about here has to do with the Lord's table, not to partake in the body and the juice, the bread and the juice in the name of Christ, not to permit that. For what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not the inside of the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray the Holy Spirit. Lord, would help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word. And God, recognizing that as we deal with this subject this morning, God, it's, it's in your word. Lord, it's not man's opinion, but God, it's your word. And so, Lord, we pray that, God, it would be seasoned with grace and mercy, yet, God, with a heart and an attitude to want to honor you as the body of Christ, because, Jesus, you are worthy of lives that are given over in worship and purity to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me say this in intro. Church discipline, as we're going to look at it this morning, always, 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 always has the intent of restoration. Did you hear that? It is not so that we can run around like the secret police or the Gestapo 
or to do damage to somebody we didn't like anyway, and all of a sudden we find out something, and we try to defame their name. It's not for that. If it's of that, it's wrong, and it's of the, of the enemy utmost. But church discipline in the body of Christ is, number one, so that Jesus may be glorified, and that, number two, the believer might be restored back into fellowship, not because we're, we just don't want to have anything to do with sinners, but we know that when one is caught and trapped up in sin, my goodness, they always end up where they never intended to be. Do you understand what I'm saying? I have had experience with church discipline both personally and as a staff pastor having to deal with it within the body of Christ. And so let me give full disclosure here. Several years ago, Sandy and I were in another church and there was a new pastor that was going to be put in position as the pastor of that church. Well, I had firsthand knowledge that I knew that this man was carrying on and having and participating in an adulterous affair. He was married, and he was having an affair with another woman at the same time. And I said, I cannot, I cannot endorse this. And so we had taken the protocol that Scripture outlines, and we had gone to address it. And when it got to church staff that this was going on, the thing that happened, rather than dealing with the sin that was evident, that was there, Sandy and I were blackballed. Our names were read before a church on a Sunday night, and we were excommunicated from the church. So when I share this this morning, I understand the abuse of church discipline. Are y'all with me? On the other hand, I had a brother several years ago, who was on staff at the church where I was a pastor on staff. And he had been caught in an adulterous relationship with another female who was on staff. And so as this had to be addressed, it was confronted, and we knew that we had to deal with it. But we chose, we dug in, and we said, we are going to deal with this in grace and love and mercy, but we cannot allow it to continue. Why? For the sake of the name of Jesus and the sake of the body of Christ. And so both parties were receptive to the confrontation, if you will, the challenge to the sin, and they had chosen to confess and to repent, and their spouses were included, and I'm happy to say that through a process of restoration and a process of grace and full transparency, I verified this last week, the brother that was involved in that is now serving the Lord in California. His marriage has been restored, and they are living a God-fearing, God-honoring Christ with full disclosure to the path of sin that they went down. Now, folks, that's restoration, okay? So I wanted to cloak all this in that just to let you know that we understand we're dealing with a sensitive subject here. Notice again in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, man, you're being arrogant, you're proud, you're inflated with pride, you're high-minded. Some people believe that maybe this guy that, that was sleeping with his mother-in-law perhaps 
have been one of influence in the community. Maybe he was one who had a lot of money. Nevertheless, he was one of high esteem within the community. Possibly he wrote a large check to the building campaign. Who knows? But whatever it was, they didn't want to deal with this guy. And he says, you're arrogant. Instead, you ought to mourn. Interesting word that Paul uses here. The word that he uses here when he says they ought to mourn is the same word that would be used that if you and I lost a very dear loved one and we were mourning in deep grief over loss of that person. How many of you have lost someone very near and dear to you where all you felt like you had to do is slobber and cry for days on end, right? And this is what Paul says. Rather than being arrogant, man, that's a brother who's a part of your family has been caught up in a sin and it's on a path of destruction in their life and you ought to mourn rather than be arrogant. And so the problem here is outlined. And then verse 20, in verse 2, Paul begins to say, look, this is how you're going to have to deal with it. This is how you need to punish this brother He says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Later, Paul says, remove him, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit might be saved. And and what Paul is saying, look, Remove him from the covering, remove him from the facade of fellowship so that he might bear out the consequences of the sin and the destructive path that he is on. So maybe, maybe that his flesh might be, might suffer the consequences of that, but what's more important is that he would be restored back into fellowship and relationship with Jesus. Hard thing. There's always a process, though, that is prescribed in Scripture that we need to keep in mind whenever this happens in the body of Christ. And let me share with you what Jesus said from Matthew chapter 15. The words are on the screen. Jesus says that if your brother sins against you, anybody ever been sinned against? Raise your hand if you had. Nod your head. Okay? Your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus doesn't say if your brother sins against you, go share it with a half a dozen other people so that you can get them on your side and they can hear your side of the story or you can share it in a prayer meeting for prayer purposes, right? We've all... Not gossiping, I just want you to know, man. He says, go and share it with your brother. I don't think oftentimes that we don't go to the one who sins against us, and trust me, I've been guilty of this, that I don't go to them because I'm afraid they'll reject me or I'm fearful. Often, if I really look at it, man, bottom line is, I just want some good morsels to share with somebody else. Is there anybody else with me, or am I the only one that's thinking depraved? Then notice what he says. He says, if he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. In other words, there's been restoration that's there. 
You're back in fellowship with each other. There's not this thing that's dividing you or separating you. He says, but if he does not listen, in other words, he says, you know what? Man, I, I'm not going to hear you out. I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. I was right. I'm standing on it. Take one or two others from among you, with you, and this, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he says, look, if he doesn't hear you the first time, take two or three with you. Now, can I give some counsel? Take two or three people you know that are spiritual, godly people that are not on your side, so to speak, but they're going to be able to judge the situation properly and give counsel so that there might be restoration. Have you ever heard that there are two sides to every story? That's false. You know there are really three sides to every story? It's called his side, her side, and the right side. The proverb Solomon writes that he who pleads his case first seems right until cross-examined. Do you have somebody running up to you to plead their case? Instead of falling for it and just listening to everything they've got to say and all those morsels of offense they're trying to give you about the other person, do some cross-examination. And so he says, take two or three witnesses with you, so that everything there might be established. Then verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as one who is a Gentile and a tax collector. Another verse I want to share with you in light of this. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul's writing this church, and he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression." It could be two ways of looking that. Caught is in the sense they're caught with their hand in the cookie jar or caught up. <laughs> I kind of laugh. You know, we talk about falling into sin. You know, we really typically don't fall into sin. We know exactly where the pit is and we know we're going there, right? So it says, if anyone's caught in, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You see, there's a way that we need to go to one another in the body of Christ. And I'm convinced that if we follow Matthew 15 in the body of Christ, there will be so many issues that are dealt with. Why? Because we're handling it the biblical way. He says, go to that person in gentleness. I've said it many times before. Boy, if you ever see anything in me, if you see something that, you know what, my radar has gone up there, and man, JMO is about to transverse down a path that could lead to destruction, I would pray and hope that you would come to me in love and in gentleness and say, JMO, man, I love you, but this is what I see, and you need to take heed. Amen? Now, I'm not talking about petty stuff. Not about the way I dress, the way I look, the way I comb my hair. You see, I've got some guys around me in my life that I have established relationship with and fellowship with that I can be absolutely vulnerable and candid with them in my life. 
that I can share with them areas that I am tempted in, areas that could be pitfalls for me. Why do I do that? It's not so I can brag about it. The reason I do that is because I know how stinking depraved I am. And if I'm not accountable in that, I could go that way as well. And can I share some news with you? So could you. Y'all with me? Notice what he says at the end, end of this verse. He says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, that's not put there so that we can excuse the sin of that person. It's put there so that we have the attitude and recognize, you know what, except for the grace of God, there go I as well. And if I have not committed that sin, odds are 9999991, I have probably thought about it and entertained the idea of that sin. Right? So it says, go in gentleness. Now listen, these are the forerunners in this area. But I want us to be reminded that, that what Paul is dealing with here in Corinth is a gross sin. It's, it's incest. And it wasn't a private matter. Everybody knew about it. And it was not a secret. As a matter of fact, they were arrogant and they were bragging about it. And we have to remember that we are the body of Christ. Paul says in verse 4 that we're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes I don't get a full grasp of this fact that we are literally united with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 Paul mentions you are the body of Christ. Ephesians 1.23, the body, the fullness of Him. Ephesians 4.12, preparing God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Colossians 1.18, He's the head of the body, the church. He suffered for you, and I'm Filling up in my flesh, Paul says, what's lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is his church. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Folks, we belong to each other in Christ Jesus. That's a good thing. Amen? All my weirdness, you're part of. <laughs> we belong to one another. Do you see the grace in this? As Paul talks about this. Now, the prescription, he uses three phrases, four actually. They're really kind of hard. He says he must be removed, verse 2. Deliver this man to Satan, verse 5. Cleanse him out, verse 7. Purge the evil person, verse 13. It's all for restoration. James writes this in his letter, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Can I say it again? If you ever see me wandering, 
Will you love me enough to let me know? If I ever see you wandering, will you understand that I love you and I want to let you know? Why? For the name of Jesus and His glory. The purity of the body of Christ. Lastly, notice that he makes verse 6 to 8. Giving reference to the Passover. He says, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Modern day name, a little yeast. Put a little yeast in the flour and that puppy's going to rise. All it takes is a little bit. And during the Passover celebration, they would sweep their homes of any yeast, any trace of yeast, as they began to prepare the Passover meal, which was a, a, a celebration that they continued from the days when they delivered out of Egypt, where the Passover, where the angel of death would fly over, and if it saw the blood there, it'd pass over, and the elders wouldn't be killed. And so they celebrated it annually. It says, listen... Bringing that back, and what he's talking about here, just as it need, was necessary for any leaven to be cleaned out of the house, it's necessary in the body of Christ to have any leaven cleaned out as well. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. It just means that we don't want to continue in our sin. Then to conclude this, he tells them in verses 9 to 13 that Listen, I'm, I'm not talking about judging those that are outside the church. If we were talking about judging those outside the church, he says, man, we'd have to, go, we'd have to be taken from this world. And can I say this this morning, that it's not our job to judge those outside the church. Paul says it's our responsibility to judge within the body of Christ. God will judge those outside the church, he says in this verse. One of the things that, that kind, of, kind of irks me, forgive me, this is my opinion, you can take it, leave it, chunk it, or flush it. But it irks me sometimes the way I see Christians post on social media that if I were a non-Christian, I'd think, you know, they hate me. I said, well, you know, I have the right to express what I want. Yeah, you have the right to express what you want to do, but I've got a lot of unsaved friends that are my friends in Facebook, and I'm careful not to post anything there that I, that's going to give the idea that all I am is against stuff. I'd rather be known, and I'd rather you and us be known that we are for marriage. That we are for marriage as God has designed it between one man and one woman and the two come together and they're united. And that God has intent in their marriage that they be whole, that they be loving, that they have a healthy marriage. And on this earth, I believe the marriage is the closest thing to a representation of what our relationship is to Christ. Because He is known as the groom and we are His bride. And God desires to demonstrate to a lost world that marriages are a reflection of the church's relationship to Christ so that we might glorify Him in that. I want to be known that I'm for marriage. Is it okay if I preach for a moment? I want us to be known that we are for life. 
I want us to be known that we are for extending the grace of God to every human being regardless of how they identify in gender. But that they were created in the image of God and just as we were, as Paul reminds us in Corinthians and other places, be careful, you too once were this way. And I want God to use us to display His grace to them so that they may come to know the saving work of Christ so that they might be forgiven of their sins and they might have the hope of eternal life and grow in newness and likeness in the transformed life that they have in Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.